0: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The nation's freight rail workers could strike unless Congress intervenes. Today, the House passed a resolution that would force unions to accept a tentative agreement reached earlier this year and approved a resolution to provide seven days of paid sick leave to rail workers. As NPR's Frank Morris reports, at issue has been just that.
1: President Biden asked Congress to force a labor contract on railroads and union employees after members of several rail unions voted down a tentative agreement it was hashed out by the Biden administration with railroads and union leaders. That tentative agreement would give rail workers substantial pay hikes, but not provide all of them with paid sick time. Some rail workers are on call most of the time, and for some, taking unscheduled sick days can trigger penalties and loss of income. It became a sticking point during the pandemic as rail workers stayed on the job, generating robust profits for railroads. Congress is running out of time to avoid fallout from a strike. Shipping disruptions from just the possibility of a rail stoppage will start this weekend. From News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City.
0: New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries is the incoming House Minority Leader. The 52-year-old says he will reach across the aisle while staying true to Democratic values.
2: Each and every day, House Democrats committed to fighting hard for working families, middle-class folks, those who aspire to be part of the middle class young people seniors immigrants veterans the poor the sick the afflicted the least the lost and the left behind house democrats fight for the people
0: jeffries will be the first black person to lead a major political party in congress wall street welcomed new comments today from the federal reserve chair about the feds next move in its fight against high inflation All three major indexes gained ground. The Dow ended the day up by more than 2 percent. NPR's David Gurra reports.
3: In his speech, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell suggested future interest rate hikes could be smaller than recent ones. The time for moderating the pace of rate increases, Powell said, may come as soon as the December meeting. The central bank's next meeting is in about two weeks. In its fight against persistently high inflation, the Fed has raised interest rates four times in a row by three-quarters of a percentage point each. That is an unprecedented pace. Powell and his colleagues have been scrutinizing the data, looking for signs of progress. The Fed chair said that even with smaller increases, the central bank still has more ground to cover. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
0: Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVie has died. She passed away peacefully at a hospital following a short illness. McVie played with Fleetwood Mac for nearly 30 years, released several solo albums, and won two Grammys. She was 79. This is NPR News in Washington.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is officially welcoming royalty to the city. Prince William and Kate, the Princess of Wales, will join Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, Caroline Kennedy, and others later this hour for a public welcome ceremony at City Hall Plaza in Boston. The couples in the city for the 2022 Earthshot Prize Awards Friday. The awards honor efforts to tackle climate change. The Royals will also visit Boston-area nonprofit profit organizations and learn about the city's climate challenges. One of the that was part of President Biden's motorcade during his Thanksgiving visit to Nantucket has been severely damaged by fire. The Secret Service confirms that a Ford SUV rented from Hertz was dropped off at Nantucket Airport Sunday night. The vehicle caught fire Monday morning. It was used as a support vehicle that did not transport the president or any of his family members. And efforts to save pilot whales that stranded in Eastham are ongoing. The spokesperson for the International Fund for Animal Welfare says last night four of the five pilot whales that were refloated yesterday turned back toward the shore and became stranded once again in a hard-to-reach location. The forecast, 57 degrees now, windy and wet this afternoon, and rain should last into the evening, sometimes heavy overnight tonight. Lows about 35. Tomorrow, things dry up. Sunny skies still windy, down around 42 for a high. Again, 57 now in Boston at 405. We're funded by you, our listeners, and
5: by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
6: Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible.
4: And we want to thank the people who have called just in the past five or six minutes or so, because our goal of raising $7,000 by five o'clock is now down to $6,000. Meghna Chakrabarty is with me right now. Meghna, we've raised $1,000 in just the past six minutes or so. I think we can make this goal. If people listening now call in at 1-800-909-9287 or go online at wbur.org. That's exactly the kind of pace we
7: want to and need to keep up. So let me say that number once again. It's one 800 909-9287. And if you do that now and give us give a monthly contribution to WBUR, $12 a month, we'll send you a New Yorker magazine for a year as our thanks. It's the kind of in-depth revealing journalism that makes a great compliment uh, between the New Yorker and WBUR. And for your contribution of $12 a month, you get a year of the New Yorker. Courtesy of us. But you've got to do that before 6.30 tonight. So call us at 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.
4: And we have many incentives. The New Yorker discount rate is just one of those. Uh, We also have All Things Considered. We have On Point. We have Marketplace, Radio Boston, Fresh Air. Everything that you listen to on WBUR comes at a cost to us. We don't send you a bill. um, And probably one of the few organizations that uh, doesn't have a paywall and encourages you to just pay what you think the station is worth to you. So, because right now we have this goal of raising, it was 7000 it's now $6,000 by five o'clock, we hope you will call in, make your pledge of support. If you can do a monthly subscriber pledge, that would be terrific. A one-time pledge is also great. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org.
8: It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't
9: supporting it.
10: It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes.
11: I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your
0: modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org.
7: Or at 1-800-909-9287. And it's right. It's just a modest monthly gift. For example, that $12 a month I was saying, uh, that gets you not only another strong year of WBUR, but a year, uh, one-year subscription to The New Yorker as well. But you've got to do that by 6.30 Tonight. So we've got less than two and a half hours to get in on that deal. And you know, it is a modest amount that we're asking you for. But you don't have to be modest about how proud you feel to be part of the contributing community to WBUR. So don't be. Don't be. In fact, we want you to be proud of it. 800 909 9287 is the number to call.
4: Spread the word. When you listen to the station, you like what you hear. Tell other folks as well um, who may not be initiated in WBUR because the stronger uh, we are with your contributions, with your listenership, the stronger the community is. And um, and we believe as you do in independent journalism and your funding plays a role in that. We don't have commercials. We don't have editorial constraints that commercial stations can have. And that's why we rely on you for the majority of our operating budget. one 800 909 87 wburorg We now have $6,000 to raise and just about 50 minutes to raise it. The deadline for this is 5 o'clock. Thank you so much for your pledge of support. Again, the number 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
12: Moonbox Productions' Tony Award-winning play, Torch Song, opening December 2nd, Boston Center for the Arts, Roberts Theater. Tickets at bostontheaterscene.org.
6: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. With a railway worker strike threatening, the House made an unusual move today. Lawmakers voted in favor of a measure that forces railroad union workers to accept a contract negotiated back in September. They also passed a separate measure to provide seven days paid sick leave. Both measures now go to the Senate. And all this comes after President Biden called on Congress to intervene to prevent a strike in December. NPR Jimena Bustillo is here with the latest. Hey there. Hey. Hey, so this has been very controversial. President Biden wading into the fray, urging Congress to intervene. What happened?
14: Well, for weeks, the Biden administration was really urging workers and management to keep Congress out of it. And in order to do that, they would need to come to a resolution over one of the key sticking points, sick leave. But earlier this week, Biden said he and other members of his cabinet believed that there was no chance of a resolution at the bargaining table. And he wants a bill by Saturday.
13: Right. And he thought there was no chance because not all the unions were in favor of the agreement, right?
14: That's right. You see 12 unions have to vote to approve and four of them rejected it. So even if most accepted, if just one strikes, they all do. And the earliest that they could strike is December 9th.
13: Lay out the stakes. What is at risk if we do see a strike?
14: Well, railroad carriers, retailers, and other stakeholders are raising the alarm that the economy and supply chains could be severely upended. Even if a strike is still nine days out, carriers are warning that transportation of some products could slow down as soon as this weekend. Here's Corey Rosenbush, president of the Fertilizer Institute, discussing their contingency plan.
15: For us, a strike effectively starts this weekend. Rail carriers, you know, have already notified that uh, ammonia shipments will need to be pulled off of the network starting about five days before, which would be December 4th. So many of the fertilizer companies are already preparing for that reality starting about five days before any official strike begins.
14: Railroads handle the transportation of up to 40% of all goods, but they take on the lion's share of products like ethanol, fertilizer, and grains. And massive effects on supply chains. And the result of this is shortages and higher prices for consumers on everyday items like gasoline and food.
13: Jimena uh, we're having a little glitch on your line, but let's soldier on and see if I can hear you because I want to ask you about the Senate. All eyes turn to the Senate now. How quickly might they act?
14: Well, there are interesting dynamics at play in the Senate. Some Republicans and even progressives are not willing to support just one bill that forces the contract agreement. But they're inclined to support it if it comes with a bill to provide seven days of sick leave. Here's Missouri GOP Senator Josh Hawley.
16: Well, the sick leave is a different question. I think that's what the workers say is is very important to them. And uh, I would support that. Now, if that gets attached and the workers are okay with it, I think that's a different question. But I do not support... The underlying agreement that uh, the administration wants to force on the workers. And I frankly think it's pretty extraordinary that they're trying to, they, the administration, is trying to use Congress to force on these workers something they've said no to.
14: Holly's not alone. Senator Marco Rubio said that he will not support a contract that's not backed by workers, and progressives are in line with this thinking. Senator Bernie Sanders said that he is cautiously optimistic that the two groups can put together a bipartisan coalition to support both bills. But Holly is more spe- skeptical. When speaking to me, he said that he believed likely in the minority of his party.
13: And just in a quick sentence or two, where does all this leave the president?
14: Well, it's a tough pill for the president to swallow, including other members of his cabinet that are really strong union leaders and union supporters. And But the administration today said that they want a bill passed by Saturday, and therefore they don't support amendments that could delay that. And they don't believe the Senate has 60 votes and to fierce, pass the sick leave. And here's Jimena
13: Bustillo. Thank you.
14: Thank you.
6: A very old kind of hate has been very visible lately. High profile entertainers and athletes have openly shared anti Semitic tropes. The former president recently dined with a Holocaust denier at Mar a Lago. And beyond these headlines, hate crimes against Jews have been increasing too. And Pierre's Lisa Hagen is covering the story. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Ari. Describe this trend for us. What's going on?
17: So. 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of harassment, vandalism, and violence directed against Jews. And that's according to the Anti-Defamation League, which has been tracking these incidents since 1979. And it says not only is 2022 not looking to be much different than last year, but these record-breaking numbers are also part of a period of five or six years of consistent increases in these incidents. And that's unprecedented in the ADL's three plus decades of data collection
6: okay so these incidents are at an all-time high what do they tend to look like
17: you know this this five-year period we've seen has included these big acts of violence like the 2018 mass shooting at the Pitt- pittsburgh tree of life synagogue where a gunman killed 11 worshipers but there are also thousands of smaller incidents vandalizing jewish schools um, com- community centers and extremist flyering campaigns at the ADL, it's Emily Snyder's job to document and categorize these reports. And she gave me this example from last year that really haunts her.
18: Two young Orthodox boys were like playing in their yard in California and were shot with pink balls, with red paintballs. balls. And we saw pictures of them. And I mean, it, heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking.
17: The kids were 11 and 13. And while they weren't seriously injured, that's not the kind of experience you forget. It's the same for their family and community.
6: Hate crimes have been on the rise against other groups too in the past few years. So what's the relationship between anti-Semitism and other forms of hate?
17: Yeah, you often hear experts refer to anti-Semitism as a kind of canary in the coal mine. If any minority group is being blamed for some real or perceived harm, those narratives usually find ways to also attack Jews based on century-old myths. Um, Sometimes, you know, someone can be upset about Black people demonstrating about racism. You can blame a pandemic on anyone who looks Asian. Or if you're angry about the visibility of transgender people and queer culture, It's a pretty short leap to conspiracy thinking. Uh, Here's Snyder again.
18: And Jews are centered in a lot of conspiracy theories, especially around economy or power or greed or or whatever. Like those are core anti-Semitic tropes. So when we start to see unrest, we tend to see anti-Semitic incidents climb.
6: Okay, so Lisa, we might not hear about most incidents of vandalism or harassment, but we've heard a lot about a dinner that former President Donald Trump had with Ye, who used to go by Kanye West, uh, who's made a number of anti-Semitic and anti-black remarks, and also a a notorious Holocaust denier, Nick Fuentes. So what happens when overt anti-Semitism intersects with electoral politics?
17: Whenever we see celebrities or politicians flirting with anti-Semitic tropes, it tends to be an opportunity for extremists or neo-Nazis to up their recruitment and harassment campaigns. Um, So Trump is not the first Republican candidate or official to hang out with uh, Nick Fuentes and later claim not to know about his very outspoken anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, Earlier this year, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene also spoke at a fundraiser hosted by Fuentes. Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar also addressed that same event. Neither of them faced any consequences from the GOP, and both have since been reelected. So uh, when Republicans take over the House in January, Greene is expected to regain committee assignments that Democrats stripped her of based in part on her anti-Semitic conspiracy theory beliefs. So... The more commonplace anti-Semitism becomes, the more fertile the ground gets across the country for all kinds of hate, along with the potential for real violence.
6: That's NPR's Lisa Hagen. Thank you.
17: Thanks.
5: We're funded by you,
6: our listeners,
5: and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga.
4: SemesterOff.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, a big lift on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly quarter percent 737 points, to close at 34,590. S&P ended its three-day losing streak as it climbed more than 3% to close at 4,080. The Nasdaq surged nearly 4.5% to finally settle at 11,468. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 419.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth I'm Anthony Brooks, There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks.
4: Please do make that phone call right now at 1 800 909 9287 WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Magna Chakra Party, and I believe this is correct. We have a goal of uh, raising $7,000 by 5 o'clock tonight in Magna. I think it's now down to $5,500 to raise. That is correct.
7: $5,500 left to go in the next 40. minutes. Thank you if you've called. Yeah, thank you so much. And for those of you who haven't, now's the time to do it. Let's pick up that pace. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And if you do it now, you get that... one-year subscription to The New Yorker, courtesy of us, for a $12 a month contribution to WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And, you know, The New Yorker is such a great compliment to WBUR. It offers a little bit of everything, thoughtful criticisms, deeply researched reporting and essays. Of course, there's the cartoons. And now, there are uh, crosswords, too, which uh, still challenge me. But
4: 800-909-9287 is the number to call. Stick with Andy Borowitz.
7: It's <laughs> yeah, a lot easier. Exactly.
4: So we hope you'll make the phone call right now as we chip away at that $7,000 goal. 5500 is what we have left to raise in 39 minutes now. You know, everything that WBR brings you is built on the foundation of voluntary support from listeners like you, and we hope including you right now. Here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe. It's important to say
12: that the largest portion of our funding does come from listeners and people who rely on WBUR, and that can be $5 a month, and it can be $5,000
4: a year, and it can be $50,000 a year. Every little bit really makes a pretty gigantic difference. It does make a difference. So please don't think that um, if you have what you would consider a modest amount to give to WBUR that we don't want it, because we do. Because we uh, everything that we do, every single phone call, every single pledge online, makes us closer, brings us closer to our final goal, and that keeps us on track in the overall fund drive. And the stronger we are, the more support we get from our listeners, the stronger our news coverage can be, the more ambitious it can be. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And now, Lisa, we're down to $5,000 to go in the
7: next 38 minutes or so. That is great news. So we want to keep knocking uh, money off the goal for this hour. 1-800-909. Nine nine two eight seven is the number to call. And Lisa, you mentioned earlier that other news organizations have to put all their content behind a paywall. There will not be a paywall ever here at WBUR because we are public radio. But the existence of paywalls at other uh, journalism organizations tells you something clear. It costs. Journalism costs. Great journalism costs money because it depends on human effort to create. So that's why we prefer our system of funding Public radio of a pu- uh, funding WBUR because it's just way more transparent. It comes from you, our listeners, directly to WBUR. And in return, all of the what we create is there free for the community. So 1 800 909 9287 is the number to call. And if the idea of supporting good journalism is almost enough to get you there for $12 a month as a contribution to WBUR, this will get you over the edge. We'll give you a year's subscription to The New
4: Yorker, but you've got to make that call before 630. So please make the call right now. We are driven by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, in our community, and certainly in our democracy. And we know that you as listeners believe the same thing. And you understand that, as Meghna was saying, we don't have a paywall. We do not have commercial interests who are giving us a lot of money. We count on our listeners. That's a much more transparent way of doing news. You give us what you think we're worth. But- Please keep in mind that this you can get WBR for free. That certainly doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't cost us any money to provide you 24/7 news. News is the most expensive, labor-intensive form of programming there is. So please understand that. Please support us right now in order to keep up the pace in this fund drive. We need to raise. We have a goal of a total of seven thousand dollars. What is the latest? Is it still? We need five thousand more. 000? Yeah, so we need five thousand. In uh, just about the past 25 minutes, we have raised two thousand dollars thanks to all of you who have contributed. If you haven't, please do it right now. 1-800-909- 9287-WBUR.org.
7: And I know this is a time of year where you get a lot of uh, asks in your mailbox, in your email box, from all sorts of worthy organizations. That's what happens at this time of year, this time of giving. So we know we are one amongst many, but we also know that if you're listening now, it means that you rely on WBUR. You already have a relationship with us because you listen. So maybe this is the year that you support, you buttress that relationship with uh, your contribution to help keep this station strong, independent, and there for you.
4: 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. Please make the phone call right now as we chip away at this uh, overall goal of $7,000 by 5 o'clock tonight. We can we know we can do it. So please step up. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
6: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Impersonation, increasing hate speech, targeted intimidation campaigns against activists. These are all problems Twitter users have long dealt with around the globe. Now, human rights and freedom of expression advocates are warning that new owner Elon Musk's drastic cuts and chaotic changes at Twitter are
19: heightening the risks for everyone. NPR's Shannon Bond reports. Mishi Chowdhury doesn't have to imagine how a social network that's understaffed can lead to real-world harms. She need only look to mob killings in her own country, India, fueled by social media posts. The majority world, the global south, is an expert on all of these issues. Chowdhury is a lawyer and founder of the Software Freedom Law Center, a digital rights organization. And for advocates like her, the risks Elon Musk is taking with Twitter are all too familiar. I generally say that we have been watching the same reality TV show. India is two or three seasons ahead. Because even before Musk slashed more than half of jobs at Twitter, eliminated thousands of contractors — including content moderators — and forced the resignation of hundreds more workers, Twitter was already struggling to manage the impact the platform has around the world, especially in languages other than English. Shannon McGregor is a communications professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She says it's a problem shared by the major social networks.
20: They don't have enough people who understand the language and the culture and the politics to be involved in these
19: things. Still, Twitter and its staff were aware of what's at stake. Even though only a small proportion of India's 1.4 billion people use the social network, it's influential among politicians, the media, and activists. One tweet could set off a pogrom. Then Maury Soundarajan is executive director of Equality Labs, which advocates for the rights of India's Dalit community. Before Musk
20: acquired Twitter, it was understood within the company that markets in South Asia, including India, were countries in which mass
19: atrocity was agreed to be occurring. Her group is part of Twitter's outside trust and safety council, which advises the company, helping it develop lists of racist slurs, for example. The council has not met since Musk took over. Sandra Rajan and others are alarmed by the changes Musk has already made, from announcing he will reinstate many accounts that Twitter had kicked off for breaking its rules to selling blue checkmarks that previously indicated Twitter had verified the identities of high profile accounts.
20: It is not clear to me at all that Musk knows the kinds of liability he's creating with these sort of antics.
19: At the same time, Musk has gutted the teams that set and enforce Twitter's rules. The company's human rights group and teams that work to prevent political manipulation are gone. That's fueling worries bad actors will have free reign to abuse the platform ahead of important elections around the world. Joan Donovan is an expert in online extremism and disinformation at the Harvard Kennedy School. The possibility for different kinds of media manipulation and disinformation campaigns to proliferate is enormous." Meanwhile, digital rights activists are wondering how far Musk's avowed commitment to free speech extends in countries where Twitter doesn't make a lot of money. In India, Twitter is locked in a legal battle with the government. It's challenged Prime Minister Narendra Modi's orders to censor critics on social media. Lawyer Mishi Chowdhury says that stance has sent a powerful message. I rely on the fact that Twitter does not cave into the pressure of my government and continues to allow me to speak no matter what I'm speaking against them. She's waiting for any sign that Musk will stand up for her, too. Shannon Bond, NPR News.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org.
10: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Congress is moving quickly to stop a looming freight rail strike next week that threatens to cripple the inflation-battered economy. Today, the House passed a bill binding companies and workers to a settlement proposed back in September that failed to gain the support of all 12 unions involved. Republican Congresswoman Michelle Fishbach of Minnesota says a strike would have a devastating impact across the entire economy.
21: Our country's economy can't handle a strike that reports would say would cost $2 billion a day. A rail strike would mean halting transportation of raw materials, food, beverages, and not to mention passengers trying to visit their families.
10: The bill now goes to the Senate for consideration. It imposes a compromise labor agreement that four of the unions voted down, saying it didn't go far enough to cover sick leave. Officials for a county in northeastern Pennsylvania have voted to certify their local results from the midterm elections two days after the state's legal deadline. As NPR's Hansi Luang tells us, it's unclear what happens now to some 117,000 votes.
22: Under Pennsylvania law, Monday was the deadline for counties that have not received legally valid recount petitions to certify local election results. But the Luzerne County Board of Elections deadlocked along party lines on Monday when its fifth member, a Democrat, abstained from voting on whether to certify. In a follow-up meeting today, that Democrat has now voted to certify. Still, the board faces a lawsuit by Democratic Congressman Matt Cartwright after delaying making the results official. And since the county missed the deadline, it's not clear if Pennsylvania's Secretary of State will accept some 117,000 votes from Luzerne County for state-level certification. Anzi Wong, NPR News.
10: Stocks finished broadly higher today on Wall Street. The Dow gained 737 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq added 484. You're listening to NPR News.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. House Democrats in Washington have formally ratified their new leadership team. That includes the new Democratic whip, Catherine Clark of Revere. WBUR's Steve Brown tells us the new team says it's willing to work across the aisle with Republicans, but will not abandon the party's principles.
10: Speaking to reporters at the Capitol, Clark, who assumes the caucus's 2nd rank position, said the party's message is simple. The Democratic caucus will work on behalf of the American people.
19: American people want solutions. It is not just Democratic families that are struggling to afford child care and health care. It is not just Democratic families... Who are struggling to afford housing. It is not just Democratic women who want freedom to make their own decisions about their bodies.
10: Clark said their door is open to any member from across the aisle who wants to get to work for the American people. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
4: People are waiting in the rain at Boston City Hall, hoping to see Prince William and Kate, the Princess of Wales. The Royals are in town ahead of their Earthshot Prize Award ceremony on Friday. They're set to speak at City Hall Plaza later this hour. The uh, Susanna Copeland of Rowley was born in England, but she's lived in the U.S. for about 20 years. She says she's pretty proud the Royals are in Massachusetts.
17: Knowing that um, William and Kate have come to to um, you know Boston is kind of awesome, and I think it's especially for what they're doing here, um, coming here for the environmental causes that they support.
4: The Earthshot Prize recognizes new solutions to climate issues. Security is tight around the plaza with a heavy presence of officers and police canines. Inside City Hall, Boston City Councilors have passed a home rule petition that would allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote in city elections. This would only allow the teenagers to vote for offices such as mayor and city council. The measure now heads to the state legislature. Similar proposals in communities including Brookline, Cambridge, and Somerville have not passed this stage. The stock price of Cambridge-based pharmaceutical giant Biogen rose today following news about the company's experimental Alzheimer's drug. It gained nearly 5% today. A study released late yesterday found patients given Lecanemab experienced somewhat slower disease progression. Federal officials, uh, federal approval is still pending, and one issue regulators will look at is the deaths of two people who were in a trial for the drug. Biogen won FDA approval for a different Alzheimer's treatment last year, but concerns over cost and effectiveness led most insurers not to cover it. It's 435. The forecast is next.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate.
4: Lots going on. Weather-wise, pretty windy and rainy across much of the state. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now to share details. Hi, Danielle. Hi,
21: Lisa. So what are the
4: current conditions that we're seeing outside the Boston area now?
21: Well, it's raining right now at a light to moderate clip, and it's probably going to stay like this for the next several hours. So it's a steady rain. There's some big puddles out there. You're getting some embedded downpours in there as well. So it's just slow go for the evening commute for sure.
4: And how large is this storm? I understand that it caused some uh, severe um, uh, consequences elsewhere.
21: Yeah, there was some severe weather yesterday with this system. It actually extends up and down the eastern seaboard. But yesterday, I think the latest number is there were 37 reported tornadoes that are still being checked out in Alabama and Mississippi uh, and Louisiana. Unfortunately, a couple of those were actually deadly. It's the same system, and there's not as much of a punch in terms of any severe weather for us up here, comparatively speaking to what they experienced the last couple days down in the south.
4: So what can we expect over the next several hours? So it's going to be a steady rain next few hours.
21: I think the greatest risk of some rumbles of thunder would come between about 7 and 10 p.m. from west to east. Uh, You know, there's a very thin band of some downpours and thunder right near Albany, New York right now, and that is working east. So I I do think there'll be some embedded downpours, some tropical-like downpours, and maybe some rumbles of thunder, but it's not going to be a widespread, you know, uh, severe weather outbreak or anything like that.
4: And it comes to an end when?
21: It actually wraps up pretty quickly. The back edge is going to swing through, I'd say, 9 to 10 p.m. from Worcester to Boston, give or take. So, you know, we get several hours to go, but it does push offshore pretty quickly. And then we get some partial clearing uh, and a wind shift that happens overnight tonight.
4: And then a temperature shift, too, because it's pretty warm out there now, not so much tomorrow.
21: It's 56 out there right now, which, you know, tomorrow's December 1st, so the calendar says otherwise. But tomorrow morning, you're right, it's going to be 36 degrees. When you wake up in the morning and with the wind factored in, it'll feel like the 20s. And the wind, by the way, is going to be howling the next several hours. We're going to see some gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour. The wind will ease a little bit tonight, but then it whips back up tomorrow, may gust to 45. So there'll be some pockets of scattered damage and outages that result because of that.
4: And the forecast for tomorrow and for Friday too? So I don't think actually tomorrow the wind chill will
21: be out of the 20s for many of us. So it's definitely going to be one of those days that feels a little bit chilly. And especially because, you know, Lisa, we've been so mild so many days that it definitely uh, is a little bit of a wake up call that we're almost, you know, to the winter season here. Friday, there'll be some uh, less wind, plenty of sunshine, but we'll start in the 20s in the morning on Friday and end up around, you know, 45 or so by the afternoon.
4: WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thank you.
21: Thanks, Lisa.
4: 56 degrees now in the Boston area at 439.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments that he offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers.
0: Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: And we are so happy to tell you that we're all uh, in on this uh, uh, goal that we have. Five o'clock today, we needed to raise seven thousand dollars. Magna Charcobardi is with, with me right now, and we have raised, uh, I think, twenty seven hundred. Because we have forty three hundred left to go. Is that right?
7: That's right. Forty three hundred dollars in the next twenty one minutes. We can do it.
4: Yep. Absolutely. One eight hundred nine zero nine.
7: Nine two eight seven is the number to call. And by the way, I actually loved that uh, weather uh, update from you and Danielle. I, um, because you Lisa. like the
4: weather, more? Well,
7: yeah, I was just in California, and people there <laughs> were bundling up because it was sixty <laughs> degrees out there. I'm like, come on, this is winter time; it's almost December. Like of oh, this... people know
4: that Megna is wearing her, <laughs> wearing her jacket, <laughs> her <BOR> jacket, <laughs> yeah. in the studio it's right the now. Years and first and... thing she did is to pump up the
7: heat when she walked in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! You just okay? Yes, I've been called out. <laughs> but the truth is, is, I love New England weather because we get to like really travel viscerally through the year with Mother Nature. And now we're at the end of the year, right? We're at the end of 2022. What a year it has been. This is our year-end fundraiser to sort of mark the end of another great and hopefully useful year for you in terms of WBOR's journalism. And that's why, if you haven't done so already this year, now is really the time to take stock of How much WBUR mattered to you, how much it hopefully enriched your life in terms of um, educating you and opening your mind and ears and informing you about the world. And if you think we did that, even if a little bit, now's the time to contribute. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And if you're able to contribute $12 a month before 6.30, so you've got less than two hours to do this, We'll give you a year-long subscription to The New Yorker as well.
4: It's a great deal. Eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. And we still want to make our goal of a total of $7,000 by 5 o'clock. So we are counting down right now. Every call counts. one 800 909 7 every pledge online counts as well. WBUR.org.
23: Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give.
7: 1 1-800, 800, call 1 800 909 9287. The clock is ticking because, in addition to the deadline that Tamara Keith just gave you, we have 18 minutes left to raise another $3900 Excellent. to meet our goal for this hour. So we're we're doing it. We're knocking some some zero, uh, zeros not yet not quite yet. We're we're knocking dollars off this goal, but we need to raise another $3900 before the top of the hour. So call now at 1-800-909-9287.
4: And we bring you the news that we know you want to hear. We bring you news that you may not even know that you're interested in until you hear it. And you hear the exceptional Presentation, the exceptional production, the exceptional editorial values that WBUR brings to you. We believe in bringing you the highest quality, accurate, most accurate news around, and we know that you listen for that. Even if you uh, don't think about it every day, we're asking you right now at the end of the year to stop and think about what you get on WBUR that you're not going to hear anywhere else. And if you turn the station to a different one, only for one second, and come back, you'll realize what else is out there and and why WBUR is. surviving with your help. Why, in some cases, we're thriving as well because we've added city space. We've added so many podcasts. We have wonderful material online. And um, and so please take a dip if you haven't yet because we are only as strong as your contributions let us be. So please call in right now with your tax-deductible pledge, 1-800-909-9287-wbur.org.
7: And, you know, we mentioned, Lisa mentioned City Space, the podcast, the, the, the news you get online, and of course on the radio here. All of that is made by the number one thing that you get, which is the effort, intelligence, and passion of the people, the journalists, and all the people who work in every department here at WBUR. That is what your contribution dollars are helping uh, to sustain, to keep this station going so that the great journalism can come to you every single day so call now 1-800-909-9287 and remember we got to raise $3,900 by the top of
4: the hour so let's keep up uh the the call so we can make that goal we can do this with your help with your phone call you name the amount 1-800-909-9287-wbur.org we are counting on you need a total of seven thousand dollars to raise by five o'clock thank you so much
9: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
6: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. French President Emmanuel Macron is visiting the U.S. It's a three-day trip, includes a state dinner with President Biden, a meeting with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, and a trip to New Orleans. This is Macron's second state visit in four years, the last one being in 2018. We're going to go now to NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Paris. Hey there, Eleanor. Hi, Mary Louise. So two state visits in four years. That's kind of something. Why the red carpet being rolled out here for Macron?
20: Absolutely. That's right. It's a very big deal. Trump hosted him in 2018, President Trump. The current visit is meant to underline the importance and the quality of the relationship between the U.S. and France, which is America's oldest ally, a country it's never been at war with. And it seems France has become an even more strategic partner for the U.S. than it was even a few years ago. What's changed is Britain has left the EU and has been preoccupied with Brexit, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was seen as the de facto head of Europe for years, is gone now. And historically, because of World War II, Germany has shied away from taking a lead role in diplomacy. So that leaves France. France, which has always embraced diplomacy, with a heightened role, Paris is sort of a spokesman for the European Union, said foreign affairs expert and columnist Christian Macarion. Let's listen to what he told me.
18: France is the last European country, I mean inside the EU, to have a kind of international nuclear and military status. Paris is a very important, a crucial partner for the United States of America.
13: Eleanor, give us more of the view from Paris. What what is President Macron need to get out of this trip?
20: Well, one of his main goals is to fight for European industry. You know, Europe has been far more impacted by the energy crisis than the U.S. Prices have skyrocketed three or more times higher here because of the continent's long dependence on Russian natural gas in particular. And many European factories, Mary Louise, are temporarily shutting down and there are fears some may not reopen. They could relocate to the U.S. where energy is plentiful and much cheaper. Add to this President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which gives nearly $400 billion in incentives and subsidies to companies operating in the green sector to produce in the U.S. Europeans are up in arms about this. They say it's a giant vacuum ready to suck European industry to the U.S. Europeans say these subsidies are not fair. They don't meet WTO rules, and they create an uneven playing field. And they say it's not in the U.S.'s interest to weaken its closest ally. So this will be a huge topic for Macron.
13: And then in terms of what the U.S. wants from this summit, I know here in Washington, we are hearing China is going to be front and center uh, when Biden and Macron talk. What are you hearing?
20: Absolutely. That's going to be one of the main topics. The threats posed by a more aggressive China on the world stage commercially, diplomatically, militarily. The U.S. has been pushing its European allies to take a harder stance on China in recent years. Uh, Europe has toughened its attitude, said Macarion, but Europe does not want to be completely aligned with the U.S. either, he said. Let's listen.
18: We have affirmed that China is a systemic rival, which is already very severe, but we are not ready to go farther than that. France and Germany, supported by other countries, we all think that we cannot afford to have a confrontation with China.
13: Eleanor, along with China, the other big thing they're going to have to talk about is Ukraine, war in Ukraine. And France and the U.S. have been very closely aligned on that to date.
20: Absolutely. in supporting Ukraine. But there's more evidence, say analysts, that they're looking towards bringing this war to an end at the negotiating table and not the battlefield. Macron has always kept the lines of communication open with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And it looks like the U.S. is leaning more towards the direction of pushing Ukraine to negotiate an end
13: to this war. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Paris. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Mary Louise.
6: Here's another way the U.S. and allies are pressuring Russia to end its war in Ukraine. Through a plan to deprive the Kremlin of much-needed cash. Critics say the plan could have loopholes and there's no guarantee it will work, with Russia having funded its war for many months through the high cost of oil. NPR's Jackie Northam reports.
24: There are two key policies that will be unveiled on December 5th, targeting Russia's oil revenue. First, the European Union will ban all seaborne imports of Russian crude. A major shift, says Ben Cahill with the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
15: What policymakers are trying to do is cut the world's largest oil exporter out of the market to a large degree. They're trying to cut Russia off from Europe, which has always been one of its largest export destinations.
24: The second blow is that the U.S. and G7 allies will impose a price cap on the oil Russia continues to sell to other parts of the world. The price cap plan, which has been spearheaded by the U.S. Treasury Department, is meant to limit Russia's oil profits but keep some crude flowing on the world's market. That's because there's been concern that new EU bans on oil as well as insurance also taking effect next week would send oil prices skyrocketing by creating huge cuts in supply says Arkady Gavorkian a commodity strategist at City Research.
25: We actually estimated and um, to be around 1.25 million barrels per day. Uh, is a potential risk uh, for uh, Russian oil to be out of the market because of that.
24: With global oil consumption hovering in the range of 90 million barrels a day, that's enough to raise prices for gas and heating fuel. The price cap plan will now allow tankers to carry Russian crude if the price paid for it is at or below the level set by the G7 and other nations. That price is meant to be low enough to limit the Kremlin's profits, high enough to keep Russia producing. But there could be blowback. President Vladimir Putin has declared he will not sell to any country taking part in the price cap. Cahill says Russia has already been looking for customers beyond Europe.
15: And that's really meant sending much larger volumes to India, and to China, to Turkey, and a handful of other countries in Asia. Uh, but they've had to accept lower prices as a result.
24: Enforcing the price cap will be a challenge. The plan depends heavily on documentation and proof about where the oil on the tanker is from and how much it costs. Michelle Weiss-Bachman, an analyst with London-based Lloyd's List, a maritime news agency, says there's already a lot of illicit oil trade, everything from ship-to-ship transfers in the middle of the night to falsifying documents. It's very likely that sanctions
8: evasion is is going to be a a hallmark of of what happens post-December
24: 5. There's a willing number of vessel owners who are prepared to take the risk and make money. The price cap can only go ahead if the European Union agrees by Monday on what the cap will be. So far, the 27-member EU has not been able to agree on what that price will be. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington.
13: In the past year, more than 300 bills targeting LGBTQ rights were introduced in state legislatures around the U.S. But in this past election, a record number of openly LGBTQ candidates were elected to office. What the road ahead looks like for that legislation and for some of the new legislators who will be fighting it. That's the big story on today's episode of our daily afternoon podcast. It's called Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
11: It's Layla Falted from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how.
4: By calling this number right now, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point's Meghna Chakrabarty. I think that Meg, uh, that uh, that uh, Leila Fonnell made some really, really good points there right now. And I think the takeaway, we hope anyway, for the listener is that every single phone call brings us closer to securing democracy, to keeping our journalism independent, keeping fact-based journalism, so we can combat the aversion to the truth, aversion to uh, facts and fact-based journalism that we just heard about that we all know is going on around us. So please make the call right now, strengthen WBUR and keep us strong with your pledge right now at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org.
7: You know, I think that Layla was being um, both astute and diplomatic in her use of wor- uh, use of the word aversion. I will just uh, go no holds barred and say there's an assault on the truth going on in this country. And so therefore, defending the kind of journalism that looks unflinchingly uh, at what's happening in the world around us and is willing to tell the stories of people uh, that you might not often hear from in uh, other channels and, and other sources, that's the kind of journalism that deserves your support. It's the way to hold back the pernicious effects of the assault on the truth that weakens our democracy. So that's really what we're asking Asking you to do when you call 1 800 909 9287 or go to wbur.org. You know, I can get very worked up about defending democracy, Lisa, but I'm also no. going to say that, hey, there's, you know, beside that, there's something in it for you too. Because <laughs> if you get $12 a month to WBUR, we will give you, Good I'm going to get this in here. <laughs> we are going to give you a one year subscription to The New Yorker as well. I mean, it's just kind of like the the cherry on, on top here, but we know why you're calling. And it's to defend great journalism at 800 909 9287. And we
4: know everybody needs your reminding to call and, and incentives. And one of the incentives that we have right now, along with the New Yorker, is that we are trying to raise by 5 o'clock, that's just in four minutes, uh, a total 2000. of $7,000. Yeah, it's just now need down 2000. to 2000 So we've raised $5,000 in the past 55 minutes or so. So please make the call right now. Help us get that last $2,000. And this is, this is uh, um, our kind of bite sized goals. They're big bites, but bite-sized goals to help us keep on track on this fun drive. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or if you prefer, pledge online at WBUR.org.
22: Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time.
4: I
24: get a little smarter every time I listen, and I learn all types of
18: different information.
26: It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better.
18: I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life.
16: It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about
10: different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to.
0: For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org.
7: And you can give at 1-800-909-9287. And I'm here to tell you that we only have $1,900 left on Terrific. this hourly goal. Yeah, So we have two minutes left to raise $1,900 to keep us on track. 1-800-909-9287
4: is the number to call. Now it's down to 1600 So let's Excellent. keep going. Please keep going. I mean, we really need to keep up the momentum in this fund drive. This is day two of our year-end fundraiser. When you make a pledge, It is a tax-deductible pledge that we hope uh, that's one incentive, but also the incentive is for what you get every time you turn on WBUR 24-7, every time you go online at WBUR.org, go to a city space event, watch a city space event virtually, every time you read the newsletter, every time you listen to The Common or any other podcast, Endless Thread, anything that we present on the air. This is what we have done with your contributions in the past. And we can continue to grow and be strong with your contribution right now. It is, what am I hearing now? 1,100. Excellent. 1,100 left to go. We can do it by 5 o'clock. It was a total of 7,000 starting out. 1,100 left right now. 1-800-909-9287
7: is the number to call. And if today you decide to give $12 a month to WBUR, we're going to give you a one-year subscription to The New Yorker in exchange. Now remember, you've got to do that before 630, but call now. Call now at 1-800-909-9287 because we only have $900 left
4: to go to meet that hourly goal. Thank you so much. You're helping us stay on track in the fun drive and we so appreciate that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Please call now, thank you.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from San Jose State University with more than 100 graduate programs, providing creativity and talent to the Silicon Valley and beyond. More at sjsu.edu slash graduate programs and from Uma, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at uma.com/npr. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. I'm
23: education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1
8: WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Congress is a step closer to averting a major freight rail strike and forcing union workers to accept a previous agreement. The contract was brokered by members of the Biden administration in the fall, but some unions have rejected the agreement.
23: The House
14: voted more than two to one to pass the resolution that would force the agreement and make a strike illegal. The House also voted, though by a much narrower margin, in favor of a resolution that would provide seven days of paid sick leave to railroad workers. The measures now go to the Senate, where each resolution will be voted on separately. Both Democrats and Republicans have concern over forcing railroad workers to accept the agreement. Yet, President Biden asked Congress to intervene to prevent a strike that could upend transportation of goods and services and further drive up prices on everyday items, including gasoline. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Federal
25: Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the central bank may push interest rates higher than previously expected and keep them there longer to fight ongoing inflationary pressures in the economy. However, In a speech delivered at the Brookings Institution today, Powell also signaled the size of those rate hikes might start declining as soon as the Fed's December meeting.
15: Cutting rates is not something we want to do soon, so that's why we're slowing down and you know, going to try to find our way to what that right level is.
25: Powell emphasized the decrease after four straight three-quarter point hikes should not be seen as a sign the central bank is ending its fight against inflation. The head of the European Commission is proposing frozen Russian assets be leveraged to rebuild Ukraine. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haidar reports it's the first major effort to ensure reparations for the war-torn country. The
26: Europeans have seized or frozen 300 billion euros from the Russian Central Bank since the country invaded Ukraine in February. Another 19 billion euros belonging to Russian oligarchs has also been tied up in EU sanctions. Now European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is proposing that cash should be put to use.
24: Russia must pay for its
5: horrific crimes, including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state.
26: She says the money can be invested, with the dividends going to rebuild 600 billion euros worth of damaged Ukrainian property, a scheme Ukrainians have been suggesting for months. Von der Leyen wants the
25: EU to set up a special court to prosecute war crimes as well. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kiev. An historic moment in the House today where New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries has been elected as the next House Democratic leader. Jeffries is the first black American to lead a major political party in Congress. Democrats met behind closed doors today for the party elections after Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she would be stepping down from her leadership post. The 52 year old Jeffries will head an incoming leadership trio that includes Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and Pete Aguilar of California. Stocks soared on Wall Street Today, the Dow rose 737 points. This is NPR.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 1,000 people are estimated to be on rainy Boston City Hall Plaza right now to welcome Prince William and Kate, the Princess of Wales, at a public ceremony that began just a short time ago. Earlier this afternoon, the British Royals met with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. On Friday, the Royal couple will visit the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum in Dorchester before they present the Earthshot Prize for Environmental Innovators on Friday night. The Red Cross is setting up a multi-agency resource center for nearly 100 people in Lowell who were displaced by flooding from a water main break this week. The Red Cross says the center will be a place where people can get assistance from a variety of agencies all in one place. It's set to open Friday. And a search is underway for the man suspected of killing a Marshfield couple. Carl and Vicki Matson, both 70 years old, were found beaten and stabbed to death inside their home last night. Police are now looking for 27-year-old Christopher Keeley who authorities say knew the couple. Police consider Keeley armed and dangerous. In the forecast, moderate rain around the region right now, with rain into the evening down around the mid-30s overnight tonight, then clearing skies by morning, sunshine tomorrow, cooler temperatures though, temperatures only in the low 40s. 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.05. WBUR supporters
5: include Procter & Gamble, maker of VIX Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at
22: vix.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: We are so grateful to those who gave in the last hour. We did indeed make our total of $7,000 in just about an hour. Thankfully, we are really grateful because that means we can stay on track. So thank you to every single person who called or who went to uh, WBUR.org. Now, we need to raise because we can't stop now and really want to keep the momentum going. We need to raise $7,000 by 6 o'clock tonight. So that's in about 55 minutes. If you uh, were not able to give, if you haven't given yet in this fund drive, then please do it right now. one 800 909 928 7 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point host of Magna Chakraborty.
7: We are those lovable but annoying kind of goal-driven people mm-hmm. who say, oh
4: yeah, we got that done. Now what's
7: next? <laughs> well, what's next is another solid goal that we would like to achieve in this next hour by 6 o'clock. And as Lisa said, that's another $7,000. And again, it's like, you know, we just want we do this to so stay on pace and to continue to remind you that WBUR is here for you and we can do that because you are here for us during this year-end fundraiser. So call now at 1-800-909-9287. And uh, if you haven't already, let me uh, remind you, if, or if you haven't heard this already, let me remind you that if you can give $12 a month to WBUR uh, before 6.30 tonight... So in the next hour and a half, we will give you a one-year subscription to The New Yorker magazine in return. It's a great deal.
4: 1-800-909-9287. Please make the phone call right now. $7,000 we need to raise by 6 o'clock tonight. So please make the call right now. We have uh, uh, news that never stops. And that is why we need to ask you to support us. Thank you to everybody who has done just that. If you haven't, please do it right now. If you become a monthly sustainer, $5.00 a month, $20 a month, $25 a month. If you can do that, please do. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private
12: bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash wealth
13: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
6: And I'm Ari Shapiro. New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries made history today as fellow Democrats elected him to take the top leadership position in the House of Representatives. He'll be the first black person to lead a political party in Congress. This comes after Democrats lost control of the House in the midterms and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi decided not to run for a leadership position. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre De- NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been reporting on Jeffries and this new era of leadership on Capitol Hill. Hey Deirdre. Hey Ari. So, Speaker Pelosi is stepping down along with her two top deputies. This feels like a new chapter, a real changing of the guard.
8: It really is. Pelosi and her top deputies are all in their 80s. In her speech when she announced she wasn't going to run for a leadership post, Pelosi said she wanted to usher in a new generation of younger leaders. Jeffries, along with his new number two Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark, are both in their 50s. California Democrat Pete Aguilar, who's going to serve as the new caucus chair next year, is 43. Both veteran Hill Democrats and newer members I I talked to today were really excited about the generational change, but they also talked about how the new team reflects the diversity of the party.
2: I have been preaching the gospel of Hakeem Jeffries for about three years.
8: That's Missouri Democrat Emanuel Cleaver, a former pastor and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus.
2: I'm thrilled. Uh, You know, it's one of the last frontiers in politics.
8: Jeffries' political star has been rising for years. He was elected to the House in 2012 and won the post as caucus chair in 2018. He was born in Crown Heights, a neighborhood in Brooklyn. His working-class parents were social workers, and Jeffries was educated in New York City public schools. He sports sneakers with his dress suits and occasionally quotes his favorite rappers. California Democrat Nanette Berrigan says she shares a working-class background with Jeffries, And she's quick to note the historic nature of his election.
20: He understands what it's like to be a person of color, the discrimination that we face, the marginalized communities. So to have his perspective, his experience with his background, which to me is very much like the diversity of America, is a remarkable moment.
8: Jeffrey serves on the House Judiciary Committee and teamed up with Republicans on a major criminal justice reform bill in 2018. Here he is on the floor during that debate.
2: These individuals are amongst the least, the lost, and the left behind. And we have an opportunity in a bipartisan way to make a difference in their lives in so many areas.
8: Pelosi tapped Jeffries, a former corporate litigator, to be part of the team presenting the House's case for President Trump's first impeachment in 2020. Colorado Democrat Jason Crow. Recounted how Jeffries wasn't distracted when a protester burst into the chamber during his presentation. While others duck for cover in the chaos, Jeffries remained calm.
22: He stopped, he collected himself, he quoted a scripture verse about how the Lord will protect his flock and stand by you, and then he picked right up where he left off and finished presenting his case.
8: Later in his closing argument, Jeffries quoted the notorious BIG, a rapper from Brooklyn, as he responded to Trump's lawyer.
2: That is why we are here, Mr. Sekulow. And if you don't know, now you know.
8: Jeffries turned to his mentor and the current highest-ranking Black leader in Congress, South Carolina Democratic Congressman Jim Clyburn, before announcing his bid for party leader. Clyburn says shifting power to younger leaders is something the House Democratic Caucus has been moving towards for years.
10: I've studied history long enough to know that Evolutions are much better than revolutions, and I think that anybody watching our caucus over the years could see the evolving leadership.
8: Splits between progressives and centrist Democrats stalled legislation regularly in this Congress. Clyburn admitted bridging the different factions will be a challenge for Jeffries.
10: That's always an issue. In the democratic caucus it always
2: will be
8: cleaver is confident jeffrey's calm demeanor will serve him well and hopes he can find a partner in the republican majority
2: my great dream is that hakeem jeffries can get with whomever becomes the leader of the speaker of the house and work to get some legislation done for the the nation.
6: That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh reporting on a change of leadership on the Democratic side of the House of Representatives. And Deirdre, let's talk about the Republicans for a moment. Do we know who the speaker will be? Does Kevin McCarthy have that locked up? Right
8: now, Kevin McCarthy, who was nominated by House Republicans for, for the position, doesn't have the votes he needs to be elected by the full House in January. His Republican majority is only expected to have a narrow four-seat margin. And McCarthy already has five public no votes from fellow Republicans. It hasn't happened since 1923, but the vote for Speaker could take multiple ballots as Republicans figure out if they are going to be able to rally behind McCarthy. You know, Jeffries, for his part, said he has an open
13: mind when it comes to working McCarthy if he ends up as the House Speaker.
6: NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thanks.
13: Thanks, Ari. In a large new study, an experimental Alzheimer's drug appeared to slow down the deadly disease. But as NPR's John Hamilton reports, the drug is not a cure, and it carries some risks.
27: The study's results were presented Tuesday at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease meeting in San Francisco. They were also published online in the New England Journal of Medicine. During the meeting's opening session, Dr. Christopher Van Dyck of Yale University described the effects of the drug Lecanemab in people with early Alzheimer's.
15: Lecanemab reduced clinical decline by 27%.
27: The study included nearly 1,800 people. Half got the drug, half got a placebo. Van Dyke, the lead author, noted that even people who got the drug experienced declines in memory and thinking. In the placebo
15: group, people declined by 1.66 points over the course of 18 months. The actively treated group declines by 1.21.
27: A difference of less than half a point on a dementia scale that runs from 0 to 18. Dr. Madhav Tambasetti, a neurologist who is not involved in the study, says that's not much.
22: It's a very small effect. And from my perspective as a physician caring for Alzheimer's patients, it's very unlikely that these differences are going to be noticeable by individual patients in their everyday lives.
27: Tambacetti is a senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health, though his views on the drug are purely his own. Tambacetti is concerned that lecanemab's modest benefit may not outweigh its risks. This drug,
22: like other drugs in the same class, is not a benign drug. It's associated with side
27: effects. Like swelling and bleeding in the brain. At the meeting, though, Dr. Marwan Sabah of the Barrow Alzheimer's Institute downplayed those side effects. I know there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of buzz, a lot of energy around safety-related issues. Lecanemab removes a substance called amyloid from the brain. This removal process can cause excess fluid or small hemorrhages. And on an MRI scan, that shows up as something called ARIA, or amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. About 20% of people who got lacanumab had aria, but Sabah says that's not cause for alarm. The overwhelming majority of the aria events were mild or moderate. Sabah says the abnormalities usually disappeared after a few treatments and often went unnoticed by patients. They were symptomatic less than 3% of the time, and it would include headache, visual disturbance, and some confusion. The risks are acceptable to Mike Zundell. He's 68 and works as an investment advisor in Telluride, Colorado. He's also been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, an early stage of Alzheimer's.
1: I'm a person living with a progressive and fatal disease. I do not have time to wait for the
27: perfect research study. Zundell is currently taking a different amyloid drug called Aduhelm. It was approved in 2021, despite conflicting evidence about whether it helps patients. Zendel says he thinks Adjuhelm is keeping his memory and thinking problems from getting worse. But he says Lecanemab may prove to be a better option. The um,
1: results are extremely positive, and in my mind, it's past all the safety requirements, and I'm extremely hopeful that the FDA
27: will approve it. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to make a decision on Lecanemab early next year. John Hamilton, NPR News.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. SemesterOff.com.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. A big lift on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly two and a quarter percent, 737 points, to close at 34,590. S&P ended its three-day losing streak as it climbed more than three percent to close at 4,080. The Nasdaq surged nearly 4.5% to settle at 11,468. And the forecast, more rain overnight tonight, clearing skies by morning, overnight lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunshine with highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by
12: you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com
27: go. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: You know, when you call that number, when you go online at WBUR.org, you can hear, you can see the result of your contribution at work because what you put into WBUR is exactly what you get out. So please make the call now in this end of the year fund drive. Your um, your uh, donation to WBUR is tax deductible. And right now we are hoping to stay on track in this fund drive to keep up the pace. We need a total now of $6,500 before six o'clock tonight. That gives us about 40 minutes. So please make the phone call right now. Go online right now, wbur.org, 1-800-909-9287. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point's Magnet Tarkoberti.
7: And if you do call now and give... And are able to give $12 a month to WBUR. In exchange, we're going to give you a one year subscription to The New Yorker magazine. This offer, and it's a terrific one, is only on the table for the next hour or so. It expires at 630 p.m. tonight. So don't give up a chance to get The New Yorker um, and all of its terrific journalism, its wonderful essays. And speaking of which, actually, Lisa, do you own a snood? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm only asking because yeah. the marvelous historian, local historian Jill Lepore recently wrote yes. an article in The in the New Yorker about New England's rediscovering the snood. So see? that's <laughs> I must have missed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great article. And look, it, it, it's entertaining. It's educational. It's the kind of stuff that uh, we all turn to The New Yorker magazine for, which is why we think it's such a great compliment to your support for WBUR. But you've got to give $12 a month. Call us
4: at 1-800-909-9287. $6,000 now left to raise by 6 o'clock tonight. We know we can do it based on the number of people who are out there right now, people who we are assuming you listen because not only you enjoy what you hear on WBUR, you're edified by it, entertained by it in some cases, but also because you know that our kind of journalism keeps democracy strong, and that's what your contribution right now does. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. We need another $6,000 to raise by six o'clock tonight. Help us do it. Once again, 1-800-909-9287wbur.org. Thank you so much.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE.
6: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. These recent protests in China have cast a spotlight on its tough zero-COVID policy, a policy that is clearly unpopular with a lot of people in China. Right now, the country is going through its biggest COVID surge yet, around 39,000 cases daily. In response, the government has yet again ramped up strict monitoring and surveillance, mass testing, quarantines, large-scale lockdowns. Three years into the pandemic, one question is, why is China still relying on all these restrictions when the rest of the world has mostly moved on? Well, to help us explore this, I want to bring in colleagues from NPR science and international desks. We're joined by China affairs correspondent John Ruich and science correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Hey to both of you. Hello, Mary Louise.
22: Good afternoon.
13: Uh, Michaeline, you start. And and just help me understand why cases might be exploding in China, because China has COVID vaccines.
28: It has more than one. They were actually among the first to be developed back in 2021, right? That's right. The Chinese government has approved eight vaccines for use there, including one vaccine that's inhaled through the mouth so it doesn't require an injection. But really there are two main shots used in China, Coronavac and Sinopharm. These are not mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna have made. These vaccines use an older but well-proven technology. They're made with a killed form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And both of these vaccines have been approved by the World Health Organization, and both have been used all over the world. And do they
13: work compared to the mRNA vaccines? uh, Moderna and Pfizer that we're using here, are they effective?
28: Yeah, so these Chinese vaccines don't offer much protection against a COVID infection. So with them, you'll still see a lot of mild or asymptomatic cases of COVID. They are definitely worse than the mRNA vaccines on that front. But you know, the mRNA vaccines also don't protect against infection over time either. On the other hand, the Chinese vaccines do a good job of protecting against death and hospitalization, even an excellent job if you receive three doses of them. One study from Hong Kong published back in March found that three doses of a Chinese vaccine offered the same protection against severe disease as three doses of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, particularly in older people. But right now in China, only about 56% of the population has received three doses, and only about two-thirds of people over age 80 have received three doses. So that leaves at least 12 million people in China at high risk for hospitalization and death if they become infected. Well,
13: that's interesting. John, as our resident China watcher, jump in here. Why is uptake not higher?
22: Yeah, well, there's a few things going on here. For one, vaccine uptake by adults in China, even before the pandemic, was quite low. There's also the issue of vaccine hesitancy, like in the US and elsewhere, there's just a swath of the population that's hesitant about vaccines. And there's a sort of Chinese version of this, which relates to made in China vaccines. There's been uh, a string of product quality scandals over the years, some involving tainted vaccines. People are wary, I have friends in China who, for instance, refuse to get their kids made in China vaccine shots, they just don't trust them. Another thing that relates to the elderly is that in China, you know, vaccines are often administered by doctors who aren't familiar with or may not have access to a patient's health records. And a suspicion among some experts is that that has given doctors less of an incentive, made doctors more wary about taking the risk of giving shots to elderly patients. And also, frankly, there just hasn't been a whole lot of COVID going around in a population that's as large as China's, right? Uh, They've contained it fairly well with zero COVID policy, of course, at a cost, as we're seeing. Um, So there are people who simply don't feel any sense of urgency or need to get a shot.
13: But the thing I'm still trying to get my head around is China is an authoritarian country. They can force people into lockdown. They can snuff out protests when they want. Why can't they force people to get the shots?
22: The state has the capacity to run a a vaccination campaign. And after these protests, we may very well see it happen. The National Health Commission just yesterday ordered the further acceleration of vaccinations of the elderly. You know, they've had vaccination campaigns in the past, though, and they've fizzled. Some people speculate the authorities might have concerns about pushback from the populace or they're getting pressure from companies that are making money off of all the mass testing that's happening in China. Many believe, though, that it has more to do with politics in China. I talked to Rory Truex about this. He's an expert on Chinese politics at Princeton University. So Xi Jinping famously declared a people's war on COVID. And the narrative for many months was that China was outperforming the West in this war, and that became a source of regime legitimacy. And I think that led to perhaps a degree of arrogance and overconfidence about what they could accomplish with respect to COVID and difficulties in changing course. Yeah, so critics say the messaging led to complacency and it wasted critical time, right, and political capital when they could have been, you know, vaccinating the population, preparing for the eventual reopening of China.
13: Michaeline, let me get the science layered back in here with the politics, because I want, I'm interested in the, the vaccines and the the development by China of an mRNA vaccine like we have in the West. Um, they're making a push to do that. Would that help them fight this surge?
28: Yeah. So, you know, China is working on its own mRNA vaccine. There's at least six versions in the pipeline, and there is this sense that if China can get an mRNA vaccine, it would help them handle a big Omicron surge better. You know, as they loosen up restrictions, you know, an mRNA vaccine would better protect the hospitals from getting overwhelmed. But really, the vaccines they have now should be able to do this too, if, and this is key, People at high risk, like the elderly, receive the vaccines and really receive three doses of them. The three doses. Okay, John, I'm going to give you the last word. And I want you
13: to speak to what feels like you're telling me is a fundamental tension here. China's leaders seem to be feeling the pressure from these mass protests. A handful of Chinese cities are trying to ease restrictions. But that also must feel like a risky proposition in a country that's seeing, what was it, 39,000 new cases a day.
22: Yes, the coming months will be challenging for them. I mean, zero COVID's unpopular. The protests have shown that it's a political liability to a certain extent. But if they drop the policy quickly, they have medical and political risks as well. I mean, cases will soar. It's just simple math. When Omicron hit Hong Kong in the spring, vaccination rates were roughly similar, maybe a little lower than in China now. More than 6,000 people died within just a few months. Most of them were elderly. China's population is almost 200 times the size of Hong Kong. So you're talking about potentially over a million deaths. And remember, Hong Kong's hospital system is superior to that on the mainland, and it has twice as many critical care beds per capita as China does. The United States, by comparison, has four times as many per capita.
13: That uh, is NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruich and science correspondent Michaeline Ducliffe. Thanks to you both.
28: You're welcome. You bet.
6: It's been six months since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In that time, abortion funds, organizations that raise money to help people pay for the procedure, have seen unprecedented demand for their help. The new legal reality for abortion funds tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered. Listen on the air or ask your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org.
10: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries has been elected the next House Democratic leader. After nearly two decades with Nancy Pelosi as their guide, Jeffries becomes the first black American to lead a congressional caucus and vows to continue to work for all Americans.
2: Each and every day, House Democrats committed to fighting hard for working families, middle class folks, those who aspire to be part of the middle class. Young people, seniors, immigrants, veterans, the poor, the sick, the afflicted, the least, the lost, and the left behind. House Democrats fight for the people.
10: Jeffries will be joined by Pete Aguilar of California replacing Steny Hoyer as majority leader and Catherine Clark replacing Jim Clyburn as majority whip. Republicans gained a narrow four-seat majority in the midterms to take control of the House in January. For the first time, the U.S. government is sharing details about how U.S. military cyber experts traveled to Ukraine to help defend against Russian cyber attacks. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more on the operation, which began before Russia's invasion.
21: As Russian forces amassed on Ukraine's border last winter, Ukrainian officials invited U.S. military cyber experts to visit and help hunt for malicious activity on their networks. The U.S. Cyber Command, one of 11 military combatant commands, conducts what it calls hunt-forward operations overseas. The goal is to help allies defend themselves in cyberspace while gaining key intelligence about new cyber attacks. Between last December and March 2022, U.S. officials were able to witness destructive cyber attacks by Russia firsthand and help defend against them while sharing intelligence with U.S. agencies and private companies. It was the largest hunt-forward
10: operation conducted so far. You're listening to NPR.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A royal welcome on Boston City Hall Plaza for Prince William and his wife, Kate, the Princess of Wales, has just wrapped up. More than 1,000 people were in attendance for the public ceremony. The British Royals arrived this afternoon. They'll be in Boston, the area, for the next two days. Earlier today, they met privately with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. On Friday, the couple will visit the JFK Library and Museum in Dorchester and later present the Earthshot Prize for Environmental Innovations in the Fenway neighborhood. Massachusetts members of the House of Representatives are calling on their colleagues in the U.S. Senate to take action to prevent a nationwide rail workers' strike. Today, the House voted to impose a labor agreement brokered by the Biden administration that four of 12 rail worker unions have rejected. The House also voted to add in a new measure that would provide seven days of paid sick time to rail workers. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern says a strike would have wide ranging impact. Uh, in the economy.
10: Chemicals that purify water and provide safe drinking water across the country would be, will become scarce. Gas prices will go up. Commuter rails that carry tens of thousands of people to work each day would no longer run.
4: Senator Ed Markey says it's critical the chamber includes the sick time provision when it takes up the matter. State election officials have ordered hand recounts in a pair of state representative races in Massachusetts. One recount involves the race for representative in the area that stretches from Groton West to Ashby. Seventeen votes separated the candidates in that district. The other race includes the district made up of Topsfield, Hamilton, Georgetown, Ipswich, Newbury and Rowley. The margin between the two candidates there is 10 votes. The recounts have to be completed by December 10th. Steady rain and gusty winds are expected over Massachusetts over the next few hours as a massive storm system moves across the state. This is the same system that sparked dozens of tornadoes along the Gulf Coast yesterday. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says nothing that severe is expected tonight. I
21: think the greatest risk of some rumbles of thunder would come between about 7 and 10 p.m. from west to east. But it's not going to be a widespread severe weather outbreak or anything like that.
4: Noy says the back edge of the storm is expected to move through eastern mass by 9 or 10 tonight, clearing skies by tomorrow morning, then sunshine through the day tomorrow. Temperatures in the low 40s tops could have sunshine again on Friday. 57 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for
9: NPR comes from this station and from Jhpigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Jhpigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Zequil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquil.com. And from the listeners
13: who support this NPR station.
6: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The nation's top fighter of inflation offered a progress report on that campaign today. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell signaled the central bank may opt for a smaller jump in in interest rates next month. That news sent the stock market soaring powell cautioned however there's still a long way to go to bring prices under control npr chief economics correspondent scott horsley joins us and scott that term progress report that is what jerome powell himself is calling it so what kind of progress is being made against inflation
3: mary louise there are some encouraging signs the price of some goods has started to come down uh, housing costs are still climbing but powell sees evidence that that could start to ease next year The biggest concern for the Fed right now is that inflation has widened out into a lot of services, which are a big part of the economy, everything from haircuts to hospitality. And the cost of services is largely driven by wages. So the Fed really wants to see more cooling in the job market, more of a slowdown in wage growth. And the central bank's trying to engineer that by raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades. Now, Powell did suggest today that when policymakers meet in a couple weeks, they might raise interest rates by only half a percentage point rather than the three-quarter point rate hike they've ordered at their last four meetings. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to trigger a big rally on Wall Street. The Dow jumped more than 700 points today. But Powell cautioned, interest rates are likely to keep climbing and stay up until there's clear evidence that inflation is under control.
13: And what kind of effect are we seeing on the economy of all this, of of the rates that are, as you say, climbing and likely to continue climbing?
3: Yeah, they're definitely weighing on some parts of the economy, especially things like housing. Uh, Both home sales and new home construction have dropped significantly. Consumer spending's also slowed a little bit, but you know people are still spending money. We just saw a pretty robust kickoff to the holiday shopping season this past weekend. In a conversation today with David Wessel at the Brookings Institution, Powell said he still sees a chance the Fed can curb inflation without actually tipping the economy into a recession.
15: I do continue to believe that there's a path to a soft or a softish landing. I do believe that, and, it's and the, the definition running. of a softish landing is what soft. unemployment goes up a little, but we don't have a recession. Yeah. Unemployment goes up, but not it's not, a, it's not a hard landing. It's not a severe recession. You know, you could think of unemployment going up, but not really spiking.
3: So far, the unemployment rate has been really low, despite the Fed's aggressive rate hikes. The jobless rate in October was just 3.7 percent. Uh, we'll get a report on November's unemployment rate later this week.
13: So just a small jump, but of course, even a small jump in unemployment is painful if you're one of the people who's who's lost your job. Is the Fed getting pushback about that?
3: Yeah, a little bit. It's still pretty muted because for now at least inflation is still seen as the more urgent problem. But you are starting to hear some grumbling from lawmakers and others on the left who worry the Fed is not paying enough attention to the workers, especially lower income workers, black and brown workers, who could find themselves on the chopping block. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren confronted the Fed Chairman about that during a hearing this past summer.
9: You know what's worse than high inflation and low unemployment It's high inflation and a recession with millions of people out of work. And I hope you'll reconsider that before you drive this economy off a cliff.
3: By law, of course, the Fed's supposed to promote both maximum employment and stable prices. Powell insists he and his colleagues are not ignoring either side of that ledger. He just argued today that if you want a healthy job market over the long haul, then you've got to get control over inflation.
13: Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. And Pierre Scott Horsley.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brian O'Donovan's Christmas Celtic Sojourn. Celebrating 20 years, December 10th to 18th, New Bedford, Worcester, Rockport, Boston, and streaming. Christmasceltic.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent
22: journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: If WBUR is on your radio, if it's on your device, then we hope you will put it on your list to call right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You're pledging for the stories that you've just been listening to, the stories that are coming up on All Things Considered, and then Marketplace, and then On Point starting at 7 o'clock. And we want to tell you that we need to raise still now by 6 o'clock $4,700. We've come a long way since 5 o'clock when we started this, but we have just about 20 minutes to go now to raise that additional 4700 to stay on track in the fund drive. I'm Lisa Mullins with OnPoint's Meghna Chakrabarty.
7: 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Uh, and again, we have to raise $4,700 before the top of the hour, so in the next 19 minutes. And if you have Haven't this year at all or maybe haven't even in the past few months, now's the time to call and give to WBUR because if you're able to give $12 a month, so what is that, like 50 cents a day, even a little bit less than that, then in exchange, we will give you a one-year subscription to The New Yorker. It's a wonderful deal to um, get a, a, a subscription to a great magazine while also giving to a great public radio station, but The New Yorker deal ends at $6. 30. So you have well under an hour before that deal comes to a close. So call now at 1-800-909-9287.
4: And we are down now to 4,200 left to raise by 6 o'clock tonight. We know we can do this. Please help us out with whatever amount you think WBR is worth to you. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. Here and now, co-host Robin Young uh, spoke with us about what's at the heart of the reporting and the storytelling that you get every day on WBUR. Well, I think we've seen in the past few years why public radio matters so much. I mean, call us kind of nerdy, but we have a dedication to fact-checking, to the truth, to hearing all voices, to making sure that we amplify voices that aren't getting heard with a lot of the bombast that's coming at us. There are things that you hear on public radio with the way the broadcast landscape has changed that you just don't hear in many other places. So I I think people have come to really feel the value of public radio. And what we hope is that that translates into a donation because we rely on listeners for the majority of our operating budget. It is not commercial interest. We love having foundations support us. We love having local businesses support us. It doesn't come anywhere near what we get from listeners. And we hope that you appreciate the fact that we are independent. We don't respond to editorial, commercial editorial concerns. We respond to you. So please, right now, make your contribution. We are still working our way toward the final goal for 6 o'clock and you have you have uh, just uh, about an hour and 18 minutes left to get that special deal on The New Yorker magazine. Actually, it's even less than that because I think it ends at, is it 6.30 or 630. seven thirty? Six thirty. 6.30. In-
7: indeed, indeed. So you have 45 minutes left to get this deal on The New Yorker, which is for a $12 a month contribution to WBUR, you get a year's subscription to The New Yorker. And listen, we have only, uh, what, 16-ish minutes left to raise $3,900 wow, before the top of Thank the hour. Thank you. So 800-909-9287 is the number to call.
4: Thank you so much for every bit of your support. We appreciate it. If you can become a sustainer, that is fantastic. If you can make make a one-time gift, we appreciate that as well. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thanks again. WBUR
12: supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig.
6: One of the most high-profile prosecutions connected to the January 6th insurrection ended in a win for the government and a blow to the Oath Keepers. They're the far-right extremist group that helped organize the attack on Congress. The militia's founder, Stuart Rhodes, was convicted of seditious conspiracy. So was the head of the Oath Keepers Florida chapter. Other members of the group were convicted of lesser charges. University at Albany professor Sam Jackson studies far-right extremism in the U.S. and he's here to explain what this verdict means for the group and others like it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is the most serious crime anybody has been convicted of in the January 6th cases, seditious conspiracy. Uh, Stuart Rhodes might spend years behind bars. What is the group likely to do if it no longer has him as a leader?
26: I think that the group is in some ways in a a period of transition and has been since shortly after the insurrection, in part because so many members of the group were facing criminal charges and also just because of the massive amount of public as well as law enforcement attention on the group. We saw different members of the group step up to be uh, the so-called interim president in place of Rhodes for a while before his trial actually started. So I think the group is gonna have to do some work to figure out who's going to run the day-to-day operations. And that's assuming that the group even continues. Hmm. I think it's very possible that the group might decide that there's too much baggage associated with its name and with its brand now, and that it just makes more sense to fold and, and move on to other organizations.
6: Okay, if we imagine that that happens, that the Oath Keepers as a group sort of dissolves, Do other groups pick up the slack? I mean, it's an imperfect analogy, but I'm thinking of when the U.S. focused on fighting Al-Qaeda, suddenly a group calling itself the Islamic State took over huge swaths of territory. Is there a risk that the violence and anti-democratic beliefs people channeled into the Oath Keepers just
26: goes into another group? That's actually a dynamic that we've seen over the past couple of years and and even decade-plus Oath Keepers is only one organization in this broader movement that I refer to as the Patriot-slash-Militia movement. But there are so many different groups in this space that individuals can choose to associate with. And honestly, there's not even a, a huge difference between some of these groups. So even if Oath Keepers collapses tomorrow, I'm not convinced that that changes the landscape of anti-government extremism in the U.S.
6: Huh. You've said that the Oath Keepers, and this is a quote, weaponized patriotism in an effort to subvert American democracy and that that didn't start or end with the insurrection. So with Trump out of office, what has that effort looked like more recently?
26: I think, uh, especially if we zoom out, not just to Oath Keepers, but also other organizations, we've seen a lot of a continued narrative about electoral illegitimacy or alleged electoral fraud. We saw that around the 2020 presidential election we saw some of it around the 2022 midterms i think that's been a real area of focus for anti-government extremists in america for the past few years Hmm.
6: is there any risk that prosecutions like this one become a recruitment tool that all of the attention these groups are getting not only from the media but also from federal prosecutors ends up providing them oxygen
26: there is certainly a risk of that although i think with oath keepers they, in particular, have had so much public attention over the past few years that the increase in that due to these prosecution is is probably pretty marginal. Um, and I guess I also hope that the message sent by getting a conviction on a seditious conspiracy charge might actually discourage some would-be supporters. Hmm. I don't think it will necessarily do anything to people who already know about Oath Keepers and already consider themselves to be like-minded. But someone who's maybe never heard of the organization before, and maybe might have been persuadable by the Oath Keeper's rhetoric about patriotism and about being pro-Constitution, well now they have to compete with this alternative narrative that the group is actually engaged in sedition, has been engaged in sedition. So perhaps that could be some degree of of discouragement for potential supporters.
6: Sam Jackson of the University of Albany is the author of Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group. Thank you for talking with us today. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken huddled with NATO partners today to keep a united front on Ukraine and on China.
15: What I've seen, uh, not only... At NATO, but also, for example, with the European Union, as well as in other parts of the world, is a growing convergence in the approach to the challenges that, that China poses.
6: Secretary Blinken there speaking at the end of his trip to Romania. Meanwhile, back in Washington, a Senate committee is holding hearings for nominees to be ambassadors to some key countries, including Russia. and NPR's Michelle Kellerman is covering all of this. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Ari. How unusual is it for NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to be talking about China, a Pacific country.
29: Yeah, you know, I mean, China is the biggest priority for the Biden administration. And the US has been pressuring NATO not just to recognize the challenges posed by China, which the alliance did in a document earlier this year, but also to really address those challenges. So Blinken talked about um, China's rapid and opaque military buildup, those were his words, and its cooperation with Russia. And more broadly, he said that there's a competition now to shape the world order. He wants Europe to be more careful about its business dealings with China to make sure For instance, that China doesn't get sensitive technology that could benefit its military. The U.S. has taken some steps on export controls and is now hoping that Europeans are going to follow suit. So Blinken um, says the U.S. and its partners have complex and consequential relationships with uh, China. Again, those are his words. But he believes that they are coming together on a common approach.
6: And of course, Ukraine was also a big theme of the talks in Romania. What was the message coming out of that NATO meeting?
29: Well, it was, as as the U.S. hoped, a message of unity. Secretary Blinken accuses Russia of trying to freeze and starve Ukrainians and raise the cost for the rest of the world in hopes that countries now supporting Ukraine will abandon those efforts. And he said that NATO just can't let that happen. The U.S. has announced some new aid to help Ukraine restore electricity, but Russia continues to pound civilian infrastructure in the country, and it's shaping up to be a really tough winter for everybody.
6: OK, let's turn back to Washington, where, as I mentioned, there are lots of confirmation hearings for ambassadors, including one for Russia today. Who is she and what's the job that she faces if confirmed?
29: Yeah, her name is Lynn Tracy. She's a career Foreign Service officer, and her nearly 30-year career has been mostly in the former Soviet Union. She's currently the ambassador to Armenia, and she was number two at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. So she told senators today that she knows what she's getting into. My tour as deputy chief
8: of mission in Russia was uh, already in a period after Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea when our relations were hurtling downward and we faced uh, regular uh,
29: harassment of our staff. I personally experienced some of that. And you know, Ari, it's really only gotten worse since then. I mean, just one sign this week of how fraught relations are. The Russians called off talks at the last minute on um, extending a nuclear arms reduction treaty. The Russians say they won't talk until Washington stops arming Ukraine. Senators on the Foreign Relations Committee raised a lot of other problems, from embassy operations to detained Americans. And also jailed opposition figures in Russia. And Ambassador Tracy says, if confirmed, she's going to be focused on all of these issues. A really tough job ahead.
6: Long list of priorities for the new ambassador in Russia, if confirmed. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks very much.
20: Thank you.
13: It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS.
30: As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it'll help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: And please make that phone call right now because we want you to put a dollar value on what you hear about U.S.-Russian diplomacy and what you hear about Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. Everything that you hear on WBUR comes at a cost to us. We hope you will defray that because we rely on you, our listeners, for the majority of our budget. It is the end of our year fund drive. We are encouraging you to make a tax-deductible contribution right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we have six minutes in which to raise our, uh, let's see, what is it down to now?
7: Meg?
4: $2,900. $2,900. Thank you so much to those of you who have called so far. Please, for the rest of you, we know we can do this. We can do this with your help.
7: Yeah, six minutes left, just six minutes to left left to raise that $2,900 to help us meet our hourly goal here. So the number to call, once again, is 1-800-909-9287. And if you're able to do $12 a month to WBUR, you get something terrific in exchange. In return, you get a one-year subscription to The New Yorker, along with having given that 12 bucks a month to WBUR. And I just have to admit, like $12 it does actually sound like a lot. But, Lisa, today I uh, got some Mexican food <laughs> and I got some chips and I got a drink and I suddenly had spent $16. Say it proudly. You deserved it. Oh, my God. But, but I was like, $16? I, right. I could have actually used that money for something else like WBUR. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And you only have a half hour
4: left on that deal for The New Yorker. $2,600 left to raise. Thanks to everybody who is calling in right now and really pledge whatever WBUR is worth to you. Think about uh, what you get from WBUR 24-7. We are always here for you online as well as on air through our podcasts, uh, through our presentations at City Space, our newsletters. Uh, we We kind of run the gamut and we hope that you just choose the part, the parts that you appreciate about WBUR. Tell us what they're worth and call in right now as we whittle our way down for the last $2,600. Before 6 o'clock tonight, uh, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org.
23: I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door, they looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, Yeah. And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes, when that mic went on, I nailed that script And everyone was listening, and it spread through the community, and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone. I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation, because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions That is such a great
0: story.
7: (laughs) Like Deepa Fernandez is. Oh my God, Deepa, I never, I did not know that about you, but it makes perfect sense that that is how a star was born. (laughs) Deepa Fernandez, one of the great co hosts at Here and Now, 1 800 909 9287 is a number to call to support the kinds of stories from all. All sorts of people, all sorts of backgrounds that you get here at WBUR. Now we have nineteen hundred dollars left Excellent. to raise in Thank two you. and a half minutes because we, we want to do it right before six o'clock. One 9287
4: So make the call right now. And also, if you choose to uh, pledge twelve dollars a month, you can get our discount uh, subscription for the New Yorker magazine for a year. It's normally twenty dollars a month. This offer expires at six thirty. So get your call in now and help us whittle away that final nineteen hundred dollars. Twelve hundred. Twelve hundred. Thank you. We know we can do this. I, these these uh, goals sound like they're big, but they are real goals. We don't just put any amount out there. We know the amount we need to raise. We know how many people are listening, and we hope that everybody listening will call in whatever you think WBR is worth to you. One eight hundred nine zero nine. 9287 or WBUR.org. We say that way too fast, especially when we're getting excited. Yeah. But really, we're hoping that uh, that we say it slowly enough so you'll remember it and write it down if you need to and, and call in.
7: Here's, here's the... <laughs> Here it is again, 1-800-909-9287. That, every time I screw up, that's the radio gods actually telling me to slow down. Uh, <laughs> because would I like to tell you that we'd love to raise $8 zillion in the next 60 seconds? Sure, but that is not true. The truth is we need to raise $500, just $500 more to wow, meet that goal excellent. in the next you. 55 seconds. So let's do it. one
4: or WBUR.org. Our costs are real and our our format is transparent. You make the call, you decide what you want to give to WBUR and then you listen and then you go online and you hear your donation right back out in what you hear, what you read, what you see at CitySpace. This is one of the most honest kind of enterprises there can be and we don't even tell you what to pledge. Please just make a phone call right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field, based on the memoir, His Life Story Became a Love Story, directed by Michael Showalter, in select theaters Friday. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
3: I'm executive
22: producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Democrats made history today electing New York Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries to lead their caucus in January. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports Jeffries will be the first black person to lead a political party in Congress.
8: Jeffries, who is 52 years old, is 30 years younger than House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is stepping aside from the top leadership post after holding it for nearly 20 years. Republicans won a narrow majority in the midterms, and Jeffries will serve as minority leader. The New York Democrat said his party is committed to fighting for working-class families and summed up his goal.
2: Get stuff done. Make life better for everyday Americans. He pledged to
8: find common ground with GOP leaders when possible, but also vowed to push back against extremism whenever necessary. House Democrats also elected Catherine Clark from Massachusetts and Pete Aguilar from California for the number two and three leadership posts. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol.
25: Congressional lawmakers are moving quickly ahead of a possible nationwide U.S. rail strike. The House passing a bill today that would bind companies and workers to a proposed settlement reached in September, even though it failed to get support from all 12 unions involved. President Biden has called on lawmakers to intervene despite his pro-labor stance, saying the ramifications of a possible rail strike would affect millions of hardworking men and women. Four of the unions that voted against the initial agreement brokered by the Biden administration threatened to strike next month if a new deal was not reached. The resolution imposing the compromise agreement has now gone to the Senate. Stocks rallied today after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank may opt for a smaller hike in interest rates when policymakers meet in two weeks. NPR Scott Horsley reports.
3: Powell delivered what he called a progress report on the central bank's battle against inflation. He says despite encouraging signs that some prices have come down, overall inflation is still much too high. Investors were encouraged by the Fed chairman's comments that the next jump in interest rates could be smaller than the last four. But Powell cautioned borrowing costs are likely to remain high for an extended period in order to bring prices under control.
15: Despite some promising developments, we have a long way to go in restoring price stability. We will stay the course until the job is done.
3: Powell says he still thinks there's an opportunity to curb inflation without tipping the economy into a recession. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
25: The U.S. economy, meanwhile, grew at a stronger-than-expected rate during the third quarter. The government announcing today the gross domestic product, that is the broadest measure of goods and services within the U.S. economy, expanded at a 2.9 percent annual rate from July through September. That is an upgrade from the government's initial estimate of third-quarter GDP growth. All that good news played well on Wall Street today. The Dow jumped 737 points. The Nasdaq was up 484 points today. The S&P 500 was 122 points. This is NPR.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Britain's Prince of Wales has kicked off a royal visit to Boston with a public appearance on City Hall Plaza.
6: Catherine and I are absolutely delighted to be with you today. For our first engagement in the great city
10: of Boston. As we start the countdown to the Earthshot Prize Awards this Friday.
4: Prince William says it was the moonshot speech by the late President John Kennedy that inspired him to launch the Earthshot Prize.
15: With the aim of doing the same for
6: climate change as President Kennedy did for the space race.
4: Before they hand out the prizes on Friday, William and his wife Kate, the Princess of Wales, will visit the JFK Library and Museum in Dorchester. Boston city councilors have passed a home rule petition that would allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in city elections. This would allow teenagers to vote for offices, local ones, such as mayor and city council. The measure now heads to the state legislature. Similar proposals in Brookline, Cambridge, and Somerville have not passed this stage. A Fall River police officer was arrested today after he allegedly assaulted a man in police custody with a baton. U.S. attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, said 35-year-old Nicholas Hoare hit the man in the forehead in December of 2020. He then submitted two reports that allegedly omitted the incident. He could face up to 20 years in prison if he's convicted. Rain's been coming down at a pretty steady clip. It should last into the nighttime before rain clouds move out. Temperatures down around the mid-30s overnight. Tomorrow, sunny and chilly, only in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny and dry, sticking to the 40s. 57 degrees still now in Boston at 6.06.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep
6: with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible.
4: Thank you for helping us make our goal for the last hour. We did indeed make it thanks to those of you who called in uh, at 1-800-909-9287 or pledged online at wbur.org. We break down our overall goal into somewhat bite-sized pieces, some of them bigger than others. Between now and 6:30, we need to raise $5,000 and we're wondering that means Magnus Chucker party and I what portion of the 5,000 you can do. Is it a $10 a month contribution, $20 a month? Is it $500? Is it a one-time contribution, if you can swing it, of $1,000, as some people can? If you can't, then we understand. Please listen anyway. But if you can make... A modest contribution to WBUR, we'd appreciate it. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org.
7: And we want to uh, raise that $5,000 by 6.30, which also happens to be the deadline for this terrific offer that we've, get, we've got for you regarding The New Yorker magazine. If you're able to give us $12 a month or more, Uh, We will give you a year subscription to The New Yorker in exchange. But that offer is only available until 6.30. So you've got just over 20 minutes left. 1-800-909-9287
4: is the number to call or WBUR.org. And once again, we can't thank enough the people who have called in so far in this fund drive. This is our year-end fundraiser. We're encouraging you to make a tax-deductible contribution right now in whatever amount you think WBUR is worth to you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org.
5: I support WBUR because it keeps me informed, it enriches my life, and it keeps me connected to the world around me in a way that I don't have time to do all by myself.
18: They help me to stay educated on the issues that are going on, not only in the nation, but in the world. And I want to contribute to that and help them be able to give those services, not only to me, but to everyone in the community. I don't want to see one of the last
19: bastions of quality journalism go by the wayside.
15: I want WBUR to remain independent, and the only way that happens is if I contribute and if other people contribute.
0: Become a member today. Give monthly at
4: WBUR.org. And we have some good news right now. $4,000 left to raise, and uh, that means we took a 1000 off just in the past few minutes. You took a $1,000 off for us, so thank you for your phone calls. We need to keep the momentum going because we need to pay our costs here at WBUR and be strong and be fortified for the news to come, and it is going to be coming. one 800 wburorg And again, we only have about ooh, 21 minutes left, so just call
7: it 20 minutes left before 6. Uh, 6- 30 tonight when we want to raise uh, that money in order to help keep us on pace. That's also the same deadline for you regarding this offer from the New Yorker magazine. And the New Yorker is one of those, just uh, legendary, iconic American magazines that uh, really gives you a slice of life um, uh, uh, across this fascinating country. Just the other day, I was reading, trying to catch up on some uh, issues, and I read a uh, review of a of a hip-hop artist. I read a really fascinating uh, uh, essay about Sam Adams. Yes, Sam Adams of Revolution fame and an analysis of centrist, centrist a Democrats, Democrats as well. Not of beer fame. Correct. Um, all there for you in one magazine, which is why for $12 a month, you get a year's subscription of The New Yorker from us. 1-800-909-9287.
4: Or WBUR.org. We have now 10 minutes to go. We uh, were able to take $1,000 off that goal of 5000 help us take the rest of it off. Please call right now. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar,
5: creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning.
6: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
13: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. With a railway worker strike threatening, the House made an unusual move today. Lawmakers voted in favor of a measure that forces railroad union workers to accept a contract negotiated back in September. They also passed a separate measure to provide seven days paid sick leave. Both measures now go to the Senate. And all this comes after President Biden called on Congress to intervene to prevent a strike in December. NPR Jimena Bustillo is here with the latest. Hey there.
14: Hey. Hey,
13: so this has been very controversial. President Biden wading into the fray, urging Congress to intervene. What happened?
14: Well, for weeks, the Biden administration was really urging workers and management to keep Congress out of it. And in order to do that, they would need to come to a resolution over one of the key sticking points, sick leave. But earlier this week, Biden said he and other members of his cabinet believed that there was no chance of a resolution at the bargaining table. And he wants a bill by Saturday.
13: Right. And he thought there was no chance because not all the unions were in favor of the agreement, right?
14: That's right. You see, 12 unions have to vote to approve and four of them rejected it. So even if most accepted, if just one strikes, they all do. And the earliest that they could strike is December 9th.
13: Lay out the stakes. What is at risk if we do see a strike?
14: Well, railroad carriers, retailers, and other stakeholders are raising the alarm that the economy and supply chains could be severely upended. Even if a strike is still nine days out, carriers are warning that transportation of some products could slow down as soon as this weekend. Here's Corey Rosenbush, president of the Fertilizer Institute, discussing their contingency plan.
15: For us, a strike effectively starts this weekend. Rail carriers you know, have already notified that uh, ammonia shipments will need to be pulled off of the network starting about five days before, which would be December 4th. So many of the fertilizer companies are already preparing for that reality starting about five days before any official strike begins.
14: Railroads handle the transportation of up to 40 percent of all goods, but they take on the lion's share of products like ethanol, fertilizer and grains. And this means that any strike could create massive ripple effects on supply chains. And the result of this is shortages and higher prices for consumers on everyday items like gasoline and food.
13: All eyes turn to the Senate. Now, how quickly might they act?
14: Well, there are interesting dynamics at play in the Senate. Some Republicans and even progressives are not willing to support just one bill that forces the contract agreement. But they're inclined to support it if it comes with a bill to provide seven days of sick leave. Here's Missouri GOP Senator Josh Hawley.
16: Well, the sick leave is a different question. I think that's what the workers say is is very important to them, and uh, I would support that. Now, if that gets attached and the workers are okay with it, I think that's a different question. But I do not support... The underlying agreement that uh, the administration wants to force on the workers. And I frankly think it's pretty extraordinary that they're trying to, u- they, the administration, is trying to use Congress to force on these workers something they've said no to.
14: Hawley's not alone. Senator Marco Rubio said that he will not support a contract that's not backed by workers, and progressives are in line with this thinking. Senator Bernie Sanders said that he is cautiously optimistic that the two groups can put together a bipartisan coalition to support both bills. But Holly is more skeptical. When speaking to me, he said that he believes he's likely in the minority of his party.
13: And just in a quick sentence or two, where does all this leave the president?
14: Well, it's a tough pill for the president to swallow, including other members of his cabinet that are really strong union leaders and union supporters. And But the administration today said that they want a bill passed by Saturday, and therefore they don't support amendments that could delay that. And they don't believe the Senate has 60 votes to pass the sick leave. And Simon of Bustillo, thank you. Thank you.
6: A very old kind of hate has been very visible lately. High-profile entertainers and athletes have openly shared anti-Semitic tropes. The former president recently dined with a Holocaust denier at Mar-a-Lago. And beyond these headlines, hate crimes against Jews have been increasing, too. And Pierre's Lisa Hagen is covering the story. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Ari. Describe this trend for us. What's going on?
17: So... 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of harassment, vandalism, and violence directed against Jews. And that's according to the Anti-Defamation League, which has been tracking these incidents since 1979. And it says not only is 2022 not looking to be much different than last year, but these record-breaking numbers are also part of a period of five or six years of consistent increases in these incidents. And that's unprecedented in the ADL's three plus decades of data collection
6: okay so these incidents are at an all-time high what do they tend to look like
17: you know this this five-year period we've seen has included these big acts of violence like the 2018 mass shooting at the Pitt- pittsburgh tree of life synagogue where a gunman killed 11 worshipers but there are also thousands of smaller incidents vandalizing jewish schools um, com- community centers and extremist flyering campaigns at the ADL, it's Emily Snyder's job to document and categorize these reports. And she gave me this example from last year that really haunts her.
18: Two young Orthodox boys were like playing in their yard in California and were shot with pink balls, with red paintballs. balls. And we saw pictures of them. And I mean, it, heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking.
17: The kids were 11 and 13. And while they weren't seriously injured, that's not the kind of experience you forget. It's the same for their family and community. Hate
6: crimes have been on the rise against other groups too in the past few years. So what's the relationship between anti-Semitism and other forms of hate?
17: Yeah, you often hear experts refer to anti-Semitism as a kind of canary in the coal mine. If any minority group is being blamed for some real or perceived harm, those narratives usually find ways to also attack Jews based on century-old myths. Um, Sometimes, you know, someone can be upset about Black people demonstrating about racism. You can blame a pandemic on anyone who looks Asian. Or if you're angry about the visibility of transgender people and queer culture... It's a pretty short leap to conspiracy thinking. Uh, Here's Snyder again.
18: And Jews are centered in a lot of conspiracy theories, especially around economy or power or greed or or whatever. Like those are core anti-Semitic tropes. So when we start to see unrest, we tend to see anti-Semitic incidents climb.
6: Okay. So Lisa, we might not hear about most incidents of vandalism or harassment, but we've heard a lot about a dinner that former President Donald Trump had with Ye, who used to go by Kanye West, uh, who's made a number of anti-Semitic and anti-Black remarks, and also a a notorious Holocaust denier, Nick Fuentes. So what happens when overt anti-Semitism intersects with electoral politics?
17: Whenever we see celebrities or politicians flirting with anti-Semitic tropes, it tends to be an opportunity for extremists or neo-Nazis to up their recruitment and harassment campaigns. Um, So Trump is not the first Republican candidate or official to hang out with uh, Nick Fuentes and later claim not to know about his very outspoken anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, earlier this year, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene also spoke at a fundraiser hosted by Fuentes. Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar also addressed that same event. Neither of them faced any consequences from the GOP, and both have since been reelected. So uh, when Republicans take over the House in January, Greene is expected to regain committee assignments that Democrats stripped her of based in part on her anti-Semitic conspiracy theory beliefs. So. The more commonplace anti-Semitism becomes, the more fertile the ground gets across the country for all kinds of hate, along with the potential for real violence.
6: That's NPR's Lisa Hagen. Thank you. Thanks. The city of Colorado Springs is rallying around the LGBTQ community after the deadly mass shooting at a gay nightclub there earlier this month. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce takes us to events raising money for victims and others. <laughs>
31: The small Atre Vida beer company is packed with people lining up to buy drinks. It's donating a dollar per beer to the LGBTQ plus resource center at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, the owner's alma mater.
10: This was a moment for us that just blew us away. There's no way we would have expected the community to come out like this.
31: The owner is Richard Fierro. He's the Army veteran who attacked the Club Q shooter, stopping the bloodshed. This fundraiser was on the calendar well before the nightclub shooting.
10: We're trying to make something happen, you know, just like everybody else does with their business. What can I
13: get for you guys?
31: Taps run out as servers sell beer after beer. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is there as a local credit union gives Fiero its first ever Community Advocate Award, complete with a $50,000 check.
20: Okay, guys, thank you. I don't know what else to say. I'm going gonna...
31: The shooting the night of November 19th left five dead and at least 19 wounded. Pride flags now hang from businesses all along the city's downtown, including a 25-foot one draped over the front of City Hall.
18: It shows we have a community here.
31: Whitley Hadley is the director of that LGBTQ Resource Center at the university. Colorado Springs is famously conservative, culturally dominated by big evangelical organizations. Hadley grew up here, and she says it's more nuanced than that this city is diverse.
1: Uh, and unfortunately,
18: tragedy brings that to light, but we are here, we exist, and will continue to exist in Colorado Springs.
25: I've lived for all my life, I'm a conservative. I've never felt that that defined the community.
31: Mayor John Suthers wants residents to give emotional and financial support to the Club Q victims, some of whom remain in the hospital. He says he hopes residents show support regardless of ideology, And he's also asking for a cool down in the rhetoric surrounding LGBTQ issues.
25: Yes, we have some differences about sacramental marriage and stuff like that, but for gosh sakes, that is no dividing line in terms of, you know, love for fellow human beings.
31: Lulu's downstairs a bar not too far away, is also hosting a fundraiser for victims of the shooting. It has that feel of an old big city jazz club. Black and white posters of the five killed adorn the walls. People bid in a silent auction for colorful cakes and other crafts.
30: And I had given Daniel a hug and a kiss, told him I loved him no more than probably seconds before it happened. Um, and this is something that's very personal to me because... Like
31: Wyatt said, Kent birthday. speaks into a microphone from a low-lit stage. His boyfriend, morning, Daniel Astin, was shot to death at Club Q. They were there with Jordan. Richard Fierro's family to celebrate Kent's birthday. I was turning 23 years old. Kent looks into the light of his phone, reading a poem Daniel had written for him.
26: There's a beautiful boy with his arms out facing the wind out of the valley and the clay rock. He's wishing the world would notice him. He's wishing the world would know him. I'm wishing for more clouds so he can point to the sky and tell me which objects
31: he thinks they look like. Daniel had told him this New Year's he was going to whisk him away to a little white wedding chapel in Las Vegas to get married. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Colorado Springs.
13: is NPR News.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st.
4: Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A big lift on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly 2 and a quarter percent, 737 points, to close at 34,590. S&P ended its 3-day losing streak, it climbed more than 3% to close at 4,080, and the Nasdaq surged nearly 4.5% to settle at 11,468. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. In the forecast, rain should last into the nighttime before it eventually ends, clearing skies by dawn tomorrow. Overnight lows in the mid-30s, then for tomorrow, sunny and brisk. Temperatures in the low 40s, Friday should be sunny as well, and dry sticking to the 40s. 56 degrees now in Boston at 6.24.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments, dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis through the FUSS Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention, and therapeutic programming and training for valued clinicians.
13: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
4: And I want to say, uh, before we go on and and give the phone number again and tell you what's happening, that story that we just heard uh, about the man who helped stop the Colorado Springs uh, shooting— um, suspect hosted a fundraiser for local LGBTQ college students at his and his wife's microbrewery on Tuesday. The reporter took you right there. You heard voices that you would not hear otherwise in a story that was only going to be 45 seconds, 50 seconds. We believe in longer form journalism because that's how we get more at the truth and we hear the voices who are at the center of what's happening. We hope you appreciate that. Spend time right now, just to, in a few minutes, to think about what that's worth to you because we give it to you 24 7 on W. If, as Mary Louise Kelly said, you can make a monthly contribution of $10 a month, $15 a month, or even a one-time contribution, we would so appreciate it. We are counting down to 630 in this fun drive. In the next four minutes, we still need to raise Magnus Party. What is it now? How
7: $1,300. Much? And we can do it. Yeah, we can do it because we started this hour with a $5,000 goal. Now we have four minutes left to raise the last $1,300 of our goal. That means we've got to do it by 630. And that's exactly the same amount of time you have left to get in on this deal with the New Yorker magazine, right? So if you were able to give us $12 a month, a $12 monthly contribution, you will get a one year subscription to the New Yorker, courtesy of WBUR. Now we're down to $900. So Thank you. 1 800 909 9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org.
4: Boston uh, radio host TCN Deering talked about the importance of our local news at this moment.
30: Local news is being gutted, local newspapers, local news sources, and it is in local news, good, attentive, quality journalism, that we both hold local officials accountable understand the local trends that affect all of us, recognize local solutions. It's how we vote. It's how we go to school. It's how we work. So for WBUR to have the capacity and ability to double down in the local space, to be truly available as a local journalism resource, the stakes are just so high. For being able to do that now.
4: And our listeners support us with uh, the largest amount of our operating budget. That's why we're going to right now. And in fact, we need to raise, I think it's down to 600. $600 by 630. That's about three minutes more to raise that amount. And we can do it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Maybe you're the kind of person who's able to give a $1,000 one-time donation
7: or a $500 one-time donation. Or maybe... maybe... Maybe it's 50 or a 12 or $10 a month donation. Whatever you are able to give, we are utterly grateful for it because every single one of those dollars goes directly to work here at WBUR for the kind of local journalism that Tiziana just talked about. Radio Boston, uh, All Things Considered here in in the afternoon and evenings, Morning Edition, our new podcast, The Common, all dedicated to serve you here in eastern Massachusetts. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And again, if you're able to give at least $12 a month, you've got two minutes to call that number and you get a year's subscription to the new yorker courtesy of us in exchange so
4: 1-800-909-9287 new number three hundred dollars to go the keeping track of this and sending us uh, information on our on our cell phones telling us what the latest amount is three hundred dollars if you haven't made the call yet please do so now we so appreciate your contributions if you have made a call if you have pledged online we are totally grateful to you support the radio station that supports you with news, information, entertainment every day of the week, every hour of the day. Everything that we do online is in service to you. Everything that we do uh, 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 at City Space, uh, in our podcast and of course on the air, is in service to you, our listeners. We do not have editorial constraints of commercial concerns. We don't get our money from commercial sources. The majority of our operating budget comes from you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And Lisa, I have great Great news we yes. met that goal Excellent. uh this half
7: hour goal just oh, thank now you. so thank you to everyone who called in or contributed online any part of that goal We really, really appreciate it. Now, it's just... The fundraiser's not over. It's not over yet, because this is one step of several that are still ahead of us. So if you haven't given, you still can. 1-800-909-9287.
4: Thank you so much to everybody who's been calling in this afternoon. We're really overwhelmed by your support. We wish we could say the fundraiser is over. It's not. So please call now. Thank you.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org.